Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to talk about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be discussing the cinematic combo of the century. We're talking about both halves of the great Barbenheimer event, Barbie and Oppenheimer. first release date shuffle as a result of the actor strike and writer strike beyond the spider-verse is gone we have no idea when it's going to be released <laughs> exactly so that one we knew was most likely going to be taken off the table even if the strike didn't happen i mean i was i think that's definitely getting be delayed 100 craven has also been pushed out from fall of this year no. to august of 2024 and same with challengers that also is getting bumped to next year crazy now being placed at april 2024 and now we can do our box office breakdown for july 21st to july 23rd coming in first place to nobody's surprise barbie with 162 million dollars domestically just domestically that is the biggest opening of the year and the biggest opening of all time for a female director it's worldwide opening was $340 million. Insane. It is on the way to $1 bar billion. Ryan, any comments? You picked the Top Gun Maverick of this year. I did. You definitely did it. Yes, I did. Crazy stuff. I mean, nobody could have anticipated being this huge. I think I'm a god. I think I am god. I think you're going to lose. I think it's a real possibility. I think it's more neck and neck now than it has ever been the past few years. That is 100% true. It's definitely neck and neck. And what is also helping it get that way is Oppenheimer, which also released this past weekend to an astounding $82 million. The biggest opening for a non-franchise Nolan film and one of the biggest openings for an R-rated film. So if you're taking out non-franchise films like Deadpool and Joker and all that, this would be the fourth biggest R-rated film opening. Crazy stuff. God, I, I am I am a god. I can't believe it. Well, I mean, God, I, I claimed Oppenheimer last second. Well, yeah, I mean, that one wasn't uh, <laughs> as great or as impressive as the Barbie call-out no, no, earlier this year. Still, like, what a, what a grab, you know? Mm-hmm. What a grab. Still going to do better than Dune, I bet. Well, doesn't Dune doesn't need to outgross Oppenheimer, just needs to gross enough to make sure my entire cumulative roster gross surpasses yours, which it might. But yeah, we'll have to do a little bit of an update soon. It's be close. We can see really, really exactly close. what the stakes are going to be. But per usual, it's going to come down to that final film, and we're going to have to which see. Movie, which movies are still need to come out? Dune and something else? Just Dune. Just Dune? Is there any of mine left? No. No? It's going to come down to the only film left. Yeah. Oh, man. And and it's going to come down to that. And it's going to come down to to how long the legs are for Barbie and Oppenheimer. And whether or not it gets delayed (laughs) into next year with the strikes. 
because that, that was a, really a thing that was floated. So we'll have to see. Definitely, does, you're fucked. The most exciting box office draft a turn out of nowhere. We thought it was a foregone conclusion a few months ago, but now it's a dead heat. So incredible, that's crazy. And the what a, what a news keeps coming for me. Sound of Freedom beat out Mission Impossible with uh, getting 19.8 million. And then Mission Impossible only got 19.3 million. So that is just tragic. I mean, the legs are getting chopped off of Dead Reckoning because of Barbenheimer and then also Sound of Freedom coming in, being a surprise sleeper hit no one could have anticipated either. Just bad circumstances all around for Mission Impossible. Yeah. And even worse circumstances for Indiana Jones, which made $6.6 million over the past weekend. I mean, that one's taking a real beating for me. That's going to be my lowest hit of the year for sure. But hey, I've still got some, some sleeper hits going on. I'm not too worried. Insidious the Red Door, right with Indiana Jones, has $6.6 million. Elemental with 5.7. Spider-Verse still hanging around top 10, 2.8 million. Transformers Rise of the Beast with 1.1 million. And rounding out the top 10, no hard feelings with 1 million. But get this, this is how Barbenheimer is so huge. The total weekend gross for all the films, this top 10 and all the other films this weekend, domestically, was 310 million. Which makes it the fourth biggest weekend at the box office ever. So it came in just behind Infinity Wars opening weekend, just by two million, it was shy of that, and then three million shy of The Force Awakens opening weekend. Of course, the number one would be the Avengers Endgame weekend, and that film alone outgrossed the entire total gross of this weekend and all the other ones. But that's insane. The fourth biggest weekend at the box office of all time, thanks to Barbenheimer and all these other summer hits that were able to have solid decent numbers this weekend so that's amazing the records are pouring in so brilliant um god what a what a good turnaround for me this is crazy (laughs) i really i was really ready to throw in the towel too uh barbie was such a a wild last pick i really didn't think it'd be doing this good this is is fantastic i'm loving this (laughs) so what do you expect in terms of overall final numbers? I mean, we know Barbie is on its way to a billion for sure. Mm. Where do you think it'll end up? And then same for Oppenheimer. How how much money do you think Barbenheimer is going to give to you? I'm hoping that I don't have big hopes for Oppenheimer. I'm hoping around seven, eight hundred that million. But for Barbie, if it could have just enough legs to last throughout August and then a little bit of September, if you can really, really push through this sort of dead part of of uh, movies going on right now, I'm really, really hoping I could end up around 1.4, 1.5, around where Mario is. That would be stellar. Yeah, that's the target it's trying to hit now is to unseat Mario as the number one film of the year. That would be so We'll cool. have to see how that happens. But yeah, the legs right now are fantastic for it. So it's definitely yeah. got a shot. It has the chance to do so. And then also with Oppenheimer, I think it'll cap out at around 700 million. But the fact that a three-hour R-rated biopic is going to be getting 700 million... That's insane. I mean, that just goes to show how 
behind only James Cameron, really. Christopher Nolan is by far the most like trusted name in Hollywood. Audiences will go out to see his films just because yeah. he's attached to it. That is insane. I do also think it got a huge bump from Barbenheimer, like the event of Barbenheimer. Like the idea of watching both, I think helped a lot. I think so, but we'll just see as the numbers keep coming in, if it's able to stand on its own apart mm-hmm. from Barbie. Because if they're both like super front loaded, then that would speak to the idea of, okay, Barbenheimer, this huge event. But if people continually keep going out to see these films, the word of mouth keeps spreading. That's also something that's in its favor. Both of these films are really well received. So yeah, it's definitely, that's a factor for it. Absolutely. But even without it, it seems like it would have been a monster. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I went to Target the other day at like 945 and I was walking out. Uh, I had been stuck behind these like teenage girls, like like maybe like 14 or 15 in the middle of high school. And I was like trying not to like listen to their conversation because I'm not weird or anything. I was just trying to check out and they were like physically standing in my way, which was bothering me. And I was trying to get around them. And mm-hmm. as I was passing them, I heard one of them say, nah, Oppenheimer was great. Just like talking about Oppenheimer. And I thought that was really, really funny. That is cool. So they hit up the uh, the double feature, seems like. Seems like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. The phenomenon of Barbenheimer, the double feature. We've been talking about it for this whole year, basically, mm-hmm. of our plans to do the big double feature. Yep. And we were certainly not alone in that. Plenty of people wanted to go out and do that. But also just the idea of people dressing up for the event like even if they didn't go see Oppenheimer they didn't make it a double feature thing you could see the impact of people being excited treating this as an event to dress up wear all the pink clothes and go to theater and have a great time so that that aspect to it I think is critical and what made it such a huge sensation people were excited just to get together go out Mm -hmm. dress up have some fun I just I didn't see anywhere online that was promoting people to dress up to go see Barbie. It just felt like a collective consciousness thing that everybody was just going to wear pink to go see Barbie. This collective idea of if we're going to see Barbie, we're going to wear pink, which is partly to do with the relentless marketing of pink everywhere (laughs) for Barbie. Absolutely. That I just incredible. Just the the amount of pink I saw was insane. Yeah, Barbie's marketing was insane, which again, like even just the color pink, like that would be subliminal marketing for it at that point. Mm -hmm. But all the the like deals that they had with other brands, they had Google at one point, like if you typed in the name of any of the main people attached to the project, like it would have those pink sparkles show up on your Google screen. There was... When I was at the dentist's office, they had on the screen, they were just playing HGTV, and I saw trailers for a special event they were doing that was going to be a Barbie dollhouse of having people come in and create, like, you know, those, like, Christmas light fight shows Mm -hmm. where they would do that of make over their house to be a big pink, like, Barbie dream house. So really funny. And that's just the few things that I was able to see. I can't imagine for, like, the targeted algorithm, algorithms, Mm-hmm. what they would be giving out to like women from any age. Cause I mean, it would target like the young teens, like you were talking about that you saw in target, but then older women as well that grew up on Barbie. I mean, I was mm-hmm. talking to my mom about it cause she and I went to go see it. Um, 
this past weekend as well. So, I mean, she grew up with Barbie dolls. So everyone from young girls to middle-aged women are going to be ecstatic about this. And then they're probably going to see the marketing for it everywhere they turn. So that plus the organic like word of mouth of people just talking about, oh, this movie's coming out. Let's do something fun. Let's do the dressing up. Like that's incredible. It's also like the stars were perfectly aligned for this. Yeah. The way that it came about, I think is still so funny that Oppenheimer definitely did get a boost from this weekend, but Warner Brothers definitely put Barbie on the same weekend as Oppenheimer to spite mm-hmm. Nolan. For sure. Because he had left Warner Brothers after the whole fiasco of Tenet and HBO Max and them trying to put films on their day and date. He obviously did not like that. Um, and so he had a falling out with the head of Warner Brothers at that time, went to go to Universal to make an, a crazy deal of like getting this massive budget, but then getting a massive amount of like first dollar gross percentage. It has to stay in theaters for like 120 days or something like that universal can't release any films within like a month of it mm-hmm. like all this stuff just so it can get the best possible thing and it definitely paid off for him so we'll have to see if warner brothers will be able to successfully get him back on board or if he'll stay with universal from here on out but just that release day announcement of when barbie was put on the same date as oppenheimer and people were already making the comparisons between what is obviously gonna be this big like poppy lighthearted mm-hmm. bubblegum pink candy colored film versus the dark and gritty brooding nolan film dealing with one of the most crazy events in history with a horrifying legacy attached to it mm-hmm. like the potential of that of the contrast between those two films immediately sparked a whole bunch of memes Oh yeah, everyone's talking about it. Like the one, all I the remember. t-shirts people made, the posters people made. Yes, I mean, that stuff was great. So perfectly, yeah. So many of them were amazing. But yeah, the the picture—I don't even know if it's still up or where it came from. But like of the two houses that are next to each other, and one's like completely black, and the other's yeah, completely yeah. pink. <laughs> In California, like, yeah, exactly. Like that being the uh, July twenty first opening day. That's what it's going to be like. My favorite so, one is there's a, a side-by-side picture of Killian Murphy. It's like half Killian Murphy and half Margot Robbie. And the, it's like they're both walking in the same direction. It's cut perfectly half between them. And, mm-hmm. Bar- and uh, Margot Robbie's putting on like the white cowboy hat. And Killian Murphy has the same hand up putting up his <laughs> Oppenheimer hat. And so right. it's like perfectly split in half with the two of them merged. And it just looks disgusting. <laughs> like Like the mouth. Margot Robbie's mouth slightly opens up and then it opens up wider into Killian Murphy's mouth. It's like mm-hmm. it's really, really gross looking, but it's really, really funny. Right. That one, the uh, the poster where it's just like Oppenheimer, but then behind him, instead of the regular atomic explosion, it's colored pink. <laughs> that was a pretty good one. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty great. But yeah, just those like completely different styles and then also like target audience as well. But then the filmmakers behind them, it being Christopher Nolan and then Greta Gerwig. Yeah. So the quality was practically guaranteed from the For jump sure. anyway. So it's not just like, oh, these random films like, yeah, Barbie, which could be, which we'll talk about, which could have been just like this big exercise in brand management where they're just trying to revitalize the brand and advertise essentially. It could have been that, but because Greta Gerwig was attached, we know it was not going to be. So then 
I feel like people were more inclined to buy into the hype and be more excited about it because there was going to be genuine substance there. Um, and then again, yeah, with Nolan, you know, you're getting an incredible immersive experience with spectacle attached that has to be seen in theaters to be, you know, the best possible viewing experience. So that as well, I think all these factors lined up perfectly to create the sensation that we got. And it's honestly, I mean, it's one of the most fun times it was the I've best had at the theater. I mean, it, it was, was so, so much fun. The whole day was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about we we talk about our, our whole like yeah, we're the, the schedule the, the schedule we had was perfect to the T. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. We started <laughs> with Oppenheimer at like one PM ish, right? Around yeah. there. And then after that whole ordeal of watching the whole damn thing, long and intense, we went and got hot pot. <laughs> which was delicious. I mean, we spent what two, two and a half hours at that hot pot place, just eating the hot pot and like debating about nuclear war. <laughs> right. And then follow that up with a costume change. And then we went to uh, go see Barbie at like 8 PM. And it was like, the sun was setting. Everybody was, the theater was fucking packed mm-hmm. with so many people in pink. We got, somebody got popcorn for Barbie. I think something like that. Maybe, uh, maybe we did, did. But not the pink popcorn. <laughs> I remember they I had wish. that too. Could you imagine? And we went and watched Barbie and it was fantastic. And then we went and got desserts. It was just such a good day. Exactly. And then, yeah, so we were fun. able to a day at the chat, chat about the films afterwards, like having that nice little period in between just to decompress. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was fantastic. So, and we did, as you mentioned there, we did finalize the viewing order we thought oppenheimer then barbie would be best anybody that watched barbie and then oppenheimer was crazy <laughs> absolutely insane definitely a different uh sort of way to end the day exhausting depressed <laughs> could you imagine you're a you're a monster if you watch barbie first <laughs> yeah it would be i want to talk to someone though that did do it that way i do i would like love to talk to somebody ben did both did you know that i think it was ben or was it kirk I'm not sure, but you can one only of the two of them. The I know for sure did both. Yeah, I guess we'll have to follow true. up with them and see. But yeah, so that was our Barbenheimer experience. Now let's start discussing the films themselves. So Oppenheimer, we went in to the 70 millimeter showing, gorgeous at our local theater. So there's plenty of different ways to see this. It was hotly debated of what would be the best one that we could do reasonably. There's the like regular showings, then there's 70 millimeter. So the actual film print in 70 millimeter being uh, shown, projected. Then there's IMAX, digital IMAX. And then there's the 70 millimeter IMAX, which only a few theaters in America are able to actually display. There's only one in Florida out in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. So we did not decide to do a pilgrimage there to Could you imagine? watch it. That would have been cool, though. It would have been cool. But the crazy thing is, which I'm kind of glad we didn't like rush out to do anything like that, is so many of those projectors were breaking on opening day. Really? Or, yeah, opening weekend, just because they're not used often at all. So they were unable to handle, like, out of nowhere, this three-hour film reel, which comes out to, I mean, who knows how like extensive that is 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, there were a lot so of issues interesting. with that. It was so interesting watching it on film because I don't, we don't see like nearly any films. I've seen maybe two films projected on film before. And mm-hmm. already we were at the 1 p.m. showing, which was like the third showing of the day. And then they had had like maybe four showings on the Thursday before, or there was a couple showings on the Friday before and the Thursday before. And already there were a couple scratches on the, on the film and in some like imperfections, which I still enjoy. I, I still think projecting a film will always look better than a digital projection. But it was interesting to see that already it had deteriorated somewhat a little bit slightly. True. But it was nothing too like distracting or anything. I liked it. So, it added to the experience of watching. I it think so film. too. Like going in, knowing that's like a oh, seventy millimeter, you kind of want some of those like little imperfections yeah, right? in there. Um, so it makes it yeah, feel but, real. Exactly, and it was absolutely packed up in there. Oh yeah, it was. Since it was yeah, like the second day, it was opened up. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be known that my viewing experience for Oppenheimer uh, got a little bit. Uh, hot. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I wore I wore pretty much a half suit to go see Bar or to go see Oppenheimer because I thought it would be really funny if I dressed kind of similar to J. Robert Oppenheimer for the Oppenheimer movie. I thought that'd be mm-hmm. funny. And uh, with a packed theater of maybe eighty bodies in there, after two hours, it got really fucking hot in that theater. And when by the time I was leaving, I had sweat all over my back and i know i know isa sweat a lot too like it was hot in that theater did you sweat at all ryan i can't remember i mean nothing to where it was like very uncomfortable and i had to i don't know like air out my shirt afterwards but there was a point where i was sitting there and i was like it it was like right after the bomb went off i was sitting there (laughs) and i was like i don't know how much is longer in this movie and i know i'm not going to leave for any reason because i want to see the whole thing but I would kill somebody to be able to pause the movie and get up and just take a five minute breather to go walk outside <laughs> and just get some air. And that was an hour before the end of the movie. So I, I was know, sitting crazy. there. <laughs> if I moved at all, I would feel the sweat on my back. So I sat perfectly Ooh. still for an hour and just watched Oppenheimer <laughs> drenched in sweat. Nice. I was I was simultaneously hot and then the AC would kick on. It would cool the sweat on my body and freeze me. So I was simultaneously moving back and forth between hot and cold and dying to get out of that theater. <laughs> wow. For my experience, as you know, I like to stay hydrated. And this is a three-hour film. Oh, so geez. I had my water with me as always, of course. And I was like, I'm going to – I did my usual routine. If I go to the bathroom right beforehand, mm-hmm. clear the pipes, come back in, and we can yep. uh, have a good viewing experience where we're so not – So which point in the movie the did you – at which point in the movie did you piss your pants? <laughs> well, I didn't cry, so I didn't, you know, have to piss my pants yeah. at all. When did you pee yourself? Um, not at all. I never had the urge to go to the bathroom. That's incredible. incredible. Yeah. One of the longest movies I've ever seen with you, and you didn't have to pee at all. That's crazy. Exactly. I perfectly rationed out my water, taking sips here mm-hmm. and there. So, yeah, that was very nice of not having to have something else going on while I'm trying yeah. to stay plugged into this. Intense. See, I was fine because I'm yeah. usually dehydrated unless I'm at a restaurant. Because if I'm at a restaurant, they're just filling my water nonstop. I'm drinking it nonstop. But usually mm-hmm. I'm pretty underhydrated. So I'm usually all right at the movies. Right. Yeah. So this this was a cake, especially because all of the water in my body was exiting the pores on my back. <laughs> <Rest. True. laughs> yeah. Wild stuff. I just yeah. want to point out 
just to you know give the listeners an idea of the viewing experience we had because i think it is it's a big part of it you know what theater we were in how we were viewing it mm-hmm. what the other factors were whether we were hydrated whether we were sweating bullets in our half suit mm-hmm. um but yes yeah, so it was packed out there was one in the row in front of us there's like a family that had what like a 12 year old kid with them mm-hmm. that was an interesting thing as we also discussed right before the the film started, that there is in fact nudity. That's why it's rated R. I mean, they had the language too, but definitely got that rating because of the uh, the nudity that came up. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty crazy. And then the guy next to me, to my left, I was having, you know, a very engaged experience. There were multiple times where he would either comment something as it was happening right before it like when los alamos was mentioned i think he said it right before then or right afterwards if he was like yep los alamos um there's a call out of jfk which he had also said right beforehand yeah i remember lily like leaning across the seat to try and stare at him and see like what was going on there um and then also my favorite was when he straight up fist pumped did a whole yeah action when I for oh the exact line I do remember it too is when uh Groves Matt Damon was saying yeah other people had said you couldn't run a burger joint and Oppenheimer laughs and he's like yeah you're right I couldn't but I can run this Manhattan project and then he, he did goes, that yeah he goes yeah and I was like wow no one really wrote that line for gentlemen like that who yeah. got all the pleasure they could out of it so insane. There you go. Was there any uh, observations you made about the people we were watching with? Other than not the people we were watching with, but other than the the sweating that I was experiencing, I was <laughs> fully plugged into the movie. Like I could not take my eyes off the screen. Nice. It was it was absolutely enthralling. All right, then let's start talking about the movie itself. So Oppenheimer, of course, the cast starring Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer. And then the entire rest of Hollywood was also included. Every white guy from like age 30 to 55 was in there. Um, Hoytavon Hoytema. 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 As a cinematographer. So Cool fucking name. It is a great name. It's the coolest fucking Hoytavon name. Hoytema. Hoytavon Hoytema. So fucking cool. And it was based on the... Could you oh, imagine my name was pro- John Von Johnson? He's so cool. <laughs> you can change it to it, you know, nothing's stopping. No, but that would have been cool. The uh, the book that's based on American Prometheus, written by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, and it was a Pulitzer Prize winner, published back in like 06, I believe. So that, of course, is where Nolan, after reading it, decided to adapt the story of Oppenheimer into a film. And this is what we have, his three-hour biopic behemoth so dylan what are your thoughts i liked it non-spoiler specific i will say it was about 30 minutes too long other than that i liked it i thought it was gorgeous i thought it was very well told i thought the story structure was very well crafted i thought the dialogue could have been better but that was not surprising to me you take issue with nolan's dialogue Uh, yes i do yeah. But that did not surprise me. Other than that, I thought it was expertly crafted. I thought it was gorgeous. I thought all of the the shots of like space and friction and explosions 
were just absolutely gorgeous. What a beautiful way to to like like show the mind of a physicist of just those beautiful inserts of these these like explosions and starry nights and skies and lights and whatnot and colors. Just an absolute gorgeous way of doing that. Uh, a little bit. I have a, an issue with I I understand the idea that you want to make the movie seem intense because the subject matter is intense, but to keep it at the same level of intensity for three hours was a lot, and mm-hmm. I wish because like it does dip up and down, but the highs and lows are still very very close together. I wish they were stretched a. a a part of it so the highs felt more high and then the lows where the pacing could slow down a bit would be a little more relaxed so i could take a fucking breath other <laughs> than that thoroughly enjoyed oppenheimer thought it was fantastic gotcha i also think it's really good i agree with many of the points you're making there i mean yeah he knows how to create a very immersive film and bring you into that experience and take you on a roller coaster like the pet, the pacing of this, the editing, it's relentless. It goes so hardcore. But I think, especially for something that is as dense as this, with so many characters, so much information. I mean, he's dealing with like nuclear physics, and then all this political fallout as well, like Cold War hysteria, and then also at a certain point, like almost becoming akin to an espionage thriller of like certain plot points of who's the leak, who is the traitor. All that stuff, there's a lot going on. And I think he does, for the most part, do a really good job of keeping us engaged, if by nothing else, than the fact that it's so relentless and you can't even take too long to ponder on something and try and like get your bearings with it because you're on to the next thing. And so that does help the three-hour runtime not seem so awful. <laughs> but I do agree with you there that it is still, I'd say, a bit too long. But we can talk about it a little later of like why he felt the need to make it so long and cover so much of Oppenheimer's story. But I do think that aspect of it is pretty fascinating. I just do have issues with what we were focusing on in his story. And then with some of these other characters like Strauss that we'll get to, I just wish it would have been handled a little bit differently so that we could have a much more clear understanding of its importance and what exactly Nolan is trying to explore with that because it does like the focus shifts towards the end of the film Mm -hmm. and it becomes like a much different story to what it was before and we already got a sense of that as you pointed out like there's a lot of different timelines I mean it's Nolan so like we have a lot of timelines going on we're cross-cutting between them a lot because that was used sort of as a framing device earlier in the film i can forgive a lot of that but then towards the end again it does like become the major like plot point and i just don't know that it entirely worked for me the other drawback that i had with it was a lack of emotionality to it mm-hmm. like killing murphy's performance is incredible and i think there is a lot of like him being somewhat cold and detached in these ways is intentional and I think he performs that really well but there are definitely moments where you can see like no one is trying to ramp up the the emotion and the pathos but it wasn't fully connecting and some of those like more intimate personal relationships that Oppenheimer had in his life I just don't feel like we're 
developed well enough or had enough of the breathing room for us to sit there with it and connect to that. So it's it's more of a mixed bag for me. There are some elements to it that, yeah, I think are off the charts. Incredible, like the Trinity test, all that stuff. Again, the filmmaking there is just incredible and breathtaking. But in some of the other elements to it, I just feel like it wasn't, at least in first viewing, this is definitely something that it seems like it would be improved on second viewing when I can have a much better understanding of everything he's already trying to do. But those things didn't work for me quite as much. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's always a something keeping it from being a masterpiece, which many people are definitely hailing this as mm-hmm. Nolan's greatest work and like a total masterpiece. I can appreciate a lot of what he's doing there. Like I see the intentionality. I can see the craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. But on some levels, it just didn't fully connect. So yeah, I can understand that for sure. So yeah, let's start digging into it, digging into the spoiler stuff and more specific items within the film itself. So one thing I wanted to talk about was the the subjectivity of Oppenheimer and the color film versus black and white film, which clearly that it's like a, an artistic choice Nolan is trying to make. What did you feel, which you may have already heard like some of Nolan's comments about that, but what did you feel was the thing that divided what was shown to us in color versus black and white. I think it's, it was hard for me to figure out because at first I was thinking it's before the bomb goes off and after the bomb goes off. That was like at first what I thought it was going to be. And then I realized a lot of the color scenes where he is getting interviewed by Jason Clark and whatever, that is also, uh, uh, it's also after the bomb. So like, as I'm going on, I'm like, okay, so some scenes in color are taking place after the bomb goes off. So I'm, I'm confused. And then they would do scenes where it's the same scene, but sometimes a shot in color and sometimes a shot in black and white. So I think what I think it is, is it's a story from Oppenheimer's perspective being told in color. And then the black and white scenes are stories being told from other characters perspectives with Oppenheimer being like the thing you're viewing in those uh, rather than being the subject, being like a, a character in those stories where mm-hmm. other characters are the subjects in the black and white, particularly Robert Downey Jr.'s character. That was my takeaway, but, I mean, even that I could be wrong. If I go back, I'm, I might be able to find a scene where it's black and white, but it's Oppenheimer's perspective. I have no idea. Right. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there with that. It's definitely meant to be from, like, other people's perspectives. It's just the way Nolan was describing it of, like, oh, it's objective when it's in black and white. That did to not me feel objective. feels, yeah, like it's the wrong sort of way to label that. It did feel like it was, okay, these are other people's like subjective experiences, right? Like, as you pointed out, especially that one scene around the table, we're shown that a couple different times. Mm-hmm. And so if we're shifting back and, between, back and forth between like Oppenheimer's subjective experience of that moment versus Strauss's subjective moment experience of that moment, that seems like it's making more sense but as you're pointing out too like it, it didn't seem like it was always rooted into just straws so i don't know that decision there to like make it color versus black and white i'm not really sure that it worked i'm not for that me, just because yeah it didn't seem to have a strong enough reason for us to divide it in that way and then yeah just the way it was describing it, like objective like that to me is like okay it's just like plain, simple, factual, here's how it happened. Mm 
which there are other moments like apparently those uh proceedings when he's getting interviewed by that one council that's trying to de- um like determine whether or not he can retain his security clearance mm-hmm. nolan apparently lifted a lot of that from the actual transcripts a lot of the dialogue in there is like from what actually happened in there so it's like yeah. okay that when you're purely just saying like these are the words that objectively were spoken at that time why wouldn't that be the thing that you share from the objective perspective that would have been interesting if they did a lot of black and white shots in that scene for like the dialogue that's happening and then you could do shots of oppenheimer like panicking and like seeing like like the the shots of the bomb going off when it's not really there when the lights like the the high exposure shots and whatnot you could do those in color or the the scene where florence Pugh's on top of him like you could do those in color and then juxtapose that with black and white shots of like objectively being grilled on these terms that were 100 percent what was said right exactly so yeah it could have been it could have been separated better if you ask me if it's really objective versus subjective which i don't think was the way to go yeah i just feel it's also funny though because like he went out and made them invent like imax film that can be captured in black and white like that didn't Mm -hmm. exist before this yeah so he made them do that because it's like oh like it's such a necessary thing for this film but it's like was it i I really don't feel like it was i don't feel like it was motivated enough by um the story choices he had made in there of like what to show as again in color versus in black and white but it's still cool that he did that. I'm, yeah, I'm glad it got invented because the black and white shots were gorgeous. Like I thought, of course, it was it was fantastically shot. And I feel like if they had he had been more rigidly defining objective versus subjective, it would have worked. Or if he had just done pre bomb, post bomb, that would have been cool too. And then you could have done a shot of like the bomb going off and it's exploding and it's this vibrant color, and then it cuts to Oppenheimer and it's black and white. Now that would have been interesting, right? And yeah, that goes to the point, too, of like trying to parse out where we are in the timeline. Are we pre-bomb, post-bomb? Yeah, it made it very difficult. Yeah. yeah. By the end, I think we do like get a grasp of like, okay, here's like where we are in this. For sure. But yeah, definitely earlier on, it was like very tough to do so, which I mean, yeah, that's part of what no one likes to do. Just throw you off in terms of your awareness of time. But. I'm very pro movies, like not just putting in text saying what year it is at any point. I'm very pro movies, just like making you figure it out as you're watching it. But Christopher Nolan does not make it easy. It's definitely a challenge to, in the beginning, at least when you're watching the movie to figure out at what point in history anything is taking place. Exactly. Yeah. Which. Yeah, I feel like for this one, because as we'll touch on later on of like, what is he trying to say with the whole last hour and this like courtroom drama part of the film? I feel like he did want that stuff to be intertwined because it is such a big component of Oppenheimer's legacy, or at least how he sees the legacy of Oppenheimer and the bomb and everything that came afterwards. But especially in those initial like jumping back and forth, it was hard to feel rooted in like this character of Oppenheimer and where we are like in the beginning when we're shown so quickly, like him talking with Einstein and like making a remark of like, Oh, he was the greatest of his time. But now it's like, it's not his time or whatever. It's like, I feel like, which again can be intentional things. Like no one is a master at this stuff, 
And so he has reasons for doing what he's doing here. But it felt like that was just damaging the connection we are trying to have with early Oppenheimer and seeing like who he is as a person then versus who he is as a person later in life post the bomb when he's like trying to accept this position or being offered by Strauss this position at that as part of that one like atomic agency thing where I don't know it's just like the the how he's being characterized felt so different and like wildly on either ends from us jumping back and forth between him in his early period when he's like off in college in Germany to post the bomb having happened and then again like these remarks about like Einstein or him like doing all these braggadocious things like when he said to Strauss too of like the which I thought was a good line of him saying oh I'm a self-made man too like oh I can relate to that when Strauss said that and it's like yeah I can relate my father was a self-made man like those sorts of things mm-hmm. I just didn't know what we were supposed to be gleaning from his character from all of that because we're just getting thrown so far between like these different moments in time of Oppenheimer's story. So it made it difficult to like truly connect with, okay, who is Oppenheimer here at the beginning before the bomb versus like how those things are supposed to reverberate later in his life. I don't know. That stuff I feel like was not as clearly well-defined. Do you think it would have been better if it was just linear? I feel it probably would have been more understandable. I do like though the way like for some of those conference proceedings, how they were framing device of him sort of like narrating things that had just transpired or right afterwards, we get to see those events somewhat like flashbacks. Um, I feel like that there is a merit to it, but just that idea of like connecting to the character. And that was, you know, one of the main things I was mentioning, like the emotionality there, like when we're switching back and forth, so much and the pace is relentless again and there's like so much dense information being thrown about all the time Mm -hmm. i feel like there's already so much that's making it difficult to fully connect on a human personal emotional level why complicate that further by having these three or four different timelines going on and intercutting them without giving at least like a year (laughs) like give us that's all i need like just say the year and then I'm good. I have like a sense of where we are and what's going on and who Oppenheimer is or maybe is at this time. Um, but yeah, Nolan Oppie. likes to tell his stories. You we could this build way. the bomb in this year, 1944. I don't know, but we're going to try. <laughs> Just the text at the bottom of the screen whenever they go to a new thing is what I meant. But I hate the text. I'm sorry. Yeah, you hate it again. Just like the year, that's all you need. I feel like just give us one little thing. And then just as like a way to orient us at the beginning, like you don't need to do it every time you go back to the conference thing, obviously just like one time in the beginning shows what year this is. Cause I still know, I still know what year that was taking place. Like we know the whole Strauss thing and that conference thing, it was in the fifties, I imagine, but yeah. um, like when exactly, how long after the bomb, is it during the Korean war? Like, I feel like these are important contextual things that they don't necessarily uh, give to us. But again, Nolan likes to, likes to do those things. He has a particular way of, telling his stories and linear is absolutely not the way for him. So yeah, for sure. Any other comments about the movie? We want, you want to get into the the plot itself. 
Um, I mean, the plot itself, I feel like, I mean, that's just us going through like the development of the bomb Mm -hmm. and some of the breakthroughs that happened there. One thing I did want to touch on (laughs) was like the female characters that were in here. Um, Nolan, of course, has a particular reputation for that. But one specific thing. Yeah. The moment where we first hear, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. <laughs> so that <laughs> took place during a sex scene between Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock, right? Mm-hmm. Played by Florence Pugh. And uh, yeah, she is riding him, gets off, goes to the bookshelf, opens up the Bhagavad Gita, goes to a random passage and says, read this in Hindu. Um, or in Hindi, I guess. And so, or Sanskrit actually is what it is. So, yeah, reading like a Hindu religious text in Sanskrit in the middle of sex. Dylan, do you remember? It was in an episode, I don't even remember which one, but I was going back through and adding timestamps to some of them. And during one of them, we were talking about Barbenheimer and like what order we were going to watch them in. Mm Mm-hmm. And you had said <laughs> that the reason it was rated R, we were talking about the announcement of, oh, it's rated R. Why is it rated R? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's because after he says that famous quote, he whips out his dick. <laughs> and so we started joking about that. Like, oh, that's a big thing. He just, he says it and then he busts. And then that's actually what happened in the movie. It's so his dick great. was out when he said this quote. <laughs> and then he, they get back to it right death. afterwards. He really did become death that's insane i just cannot believe that what was nolan thinking can you parse out what in the world was going on between like this decision to make this happen like this i mean i can only i can only think parallel thinking between two genius brains myself (laughs) and christopher nolan i mean i would have done the exact same thing true so true i also love the implication that like within the film itself of Oppenheimer. This is the first time that at least we have seen him engage with this, like, quote. But the reason why it becomes so memorable could be because, I mean, it's him having sex with Tatlock. So when the bomb goes off and then he recalls this quote, it's because he's also recalling him being with Tatlock in this moment. Mm-hmm. So that just shows, I mean, how how great it was what a great experience that he was like wow yeah. that quote has become burned in my brain some really, <laughs> because i some... said it i came and then boom that is now the neural pathways there are linked <laughs> some really great sloppenheimer <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it's crazy fantastic. i just can't believe it so i would have i would have written it exactly the same yeah of course he would have ended just, it though, just, with him just saying. just 10 times more graphic <laughs> Just close-ups of his penis for no reason. Just Inter- way, uh, way more graphic. Yeah. Intercut with the experimental imagery of yeah. the bombs going on. <laughs> I'm surprised yeah. he didn't do that. Like, honestly, go all the way if you're going to do that. Like, in that scene off with him having visions of it as yeah, and then, she's like, giving Schlappenheimer. The full height of, of Ludwig Gorenson's score. <laughs> just like as, as loud as you can be just on a penis. Right. Yeah, I would have gone for it. So, yeah, that was just very absurd to me. I don't know why that decision was made. Felt strange, weird, awkward. Can't possibly, I mean, maybe. I'd love to read the passage in American Prometheus where they find out this happened, but don't think it's uh, historically accurate. 
So I don't know what in the world um, he was thinking here with this. It also goes to another point later in the film when they're in that like uh, conference proceeding, um, like the interview where Florence Pugh shows up again, naked, riding on uh, Kelly Murphy. Yeah, I was down. As Emily that Blunt one. is behind watching it, and so I can see a bit more of the intentionality there of like, oh, you know, their inner lives being exposed. But once again, it's just very weird. I did not uh, understand could what you, in the world could was. Could you imagine if that whole courtroom scene was in black and white and then it cut to Oppenheimer with her on top of him and him buck naked in its color, <laughs> but then it cuts to Emily Blunt and her perspective and she's watching Florence Pugh ride him and it cuts back to black and white because now it's her perspective. And she's gone, yeah. yeah I feel like that that would have cool. made more sense. But yeah, as it is now, I just, I just don't understand. Like, did we need that? I feel like we could have understood, like... Yes, Emily Blunt is seeing all these revelations about him being unfaithful and going back to Tatlock when they were married and things like that. I don't feel like we needed that uh, representation. I thought it was fun. So blatantly, but... I thought it was all right. Whatever. I, I wasn't too upset about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, how upset can you be watching Florence Pugh? But either way... Well, that's not I what like I was saying. Was... <laughs> I, feel I like mean, artistically, was... I thought it was fun. I appreciated his artistic value inserted into that scene. Mm, yeah, as no, a fan of of warranted. surrealist imagery and surrealist storytelling, the idea of sticking him buck naked in in the middle of a court <laughs> hearing where his whole life's being torn apart, and then to have his lover ride him in front of his current wife, I'm down for that. Nah. Anyway, besides that, are there any? other major moments of the film you want to talk I thought about? it was crazy how little Rami Malek has to do until like the last 30 minutes. He's in the movie like <laughs> three times and he just doesn't say a fucking word. He's just like silent in the background. And you're like, Wait, that that's Rami Malek. What is he going to say something? Is he going to, is, is he going to do something? And then he shows up in the courtroom scenes and he starts like going off and I'm like, well, sure. But I mean, you barely showed him in the movie up until then. Like if he wasn't a famous person, if he was just a normal, like a, like a regular actor, nobody would know who the fuck his character was. He would just come out of nowhere. But because he's Rami Malek, you can do that, I guess. That was weird. Right. Yeah, that was funny. Well, he like dropped his band or something like that. That was like the first time we saw him. And yeah. then he was just immediately cut away. And it was like, okay, that's how they use Rami Malek. But nah, he definitely got a chance to shine later on. Yeah. I did feel like there were a few moments where it just felt like a superhero movie in a bad way. Like the 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 part where Oppenheimer's like wearing like a military suit and then his friends like take off the suit, dress like you. You gotta lead them like you. And then it does like the Oppenheimer suit up where he has like the pipe and the hat <laughs> and he's like putting them on one at a time to become J. Robert Oppenheimer. I was like, This is this is too much. I don't need this. You don't need this. You could have just cut to him wearing the outfit. It was yeah, too that was much. A little much. That speaks to another thing though, which I would have loved to see more emphasis on him running the team and how he was able to make that successful. Cause as it was presented and from like, just looking at more of Oppenheimer's story since the film, mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't seem to be like the person that's, you know, at the workstation, like computing all these things and having all these breakthroughs, right? He was the leader of the team. He was delegating all these tasks to these folks, making sure that they were able to like stay focused communicate amongst each other only insofar as they needed to in order to progress so like that element to him of him like leading this team and being able to 
like bring whatever visualizations which they handle really well in this film of like how he sees the world and sees things on this like atomic level and how he's able to communicate that to other people so that they can then go on and like do the actual tasks tasks themselves to like figure out these new things that are needed to help develop the bomb i would have loved to see more focus on that and so that yeah. scene where he was like oh don't come off to them as a like military personnel you need to come off to them as who you are like oppenheimer like they're coming here yeah. for you because your brilliance and your intelligence and all that so i would have loved to see more of like the leader oppenheimer of this manhattan project and how he was so essential to it because i mean that's also the thing of like no one's going around saying like he was the most important man like he was the father of the bomb like that's the reputation that he got afterwards but obviously as we see i mean it's this huge team effort of all these different scientists being brought together so emphasizing more of like what oppenheimer was able to do within that team and how he was so essential to them being able to get to the bomb first compared to the germans or anyone else who's trying to pursue it I would have loved a little bit more emphasis on that. Um, but yeah, this is another sort of nitpick thing. Because, I mean, yeah, it was already three hours. There's only so much they could focus on. But that would have been one area of Oppenheimer I would have liked to explore more. Yeah. Going to the other element of Oppenheimer and his story that Nolan did really want to emphasize, the whole final hour is dedicated to it of like that interview where he was being discredited basically to lose his clearance and then Strauss's confirmation hearing, which it comes out that he was, you know, doing that to Oppenheimer and then he loses out on his position. What do you feel like was the thing Nolan was trying to get at here? Cause so much of the other parts of the film, like he's dealing with the bomb, the ethical questions related to that, the legacy of it. Like we see, Oppenheimer having guilt we see his like hallucinations in the auditorium scene like him imagining all the terrible effects of the bomb so I feel like that part of it is pretty clear it's not like he's going out saying like oh Oppenheimer's absolved of any responsibility in it but it seems like he's definitely trying to communicate like this guy definitely feels remorse for being a part of what caused like a terrible horrific event and then also led to like the arms race afterwards yeah, um, I so think I feel like that part is clear. But what was yeah. he trying to say with the whole like courtroom drama aspect and like him being discredited and all this? What was your takeaway from that? I think you're hitting the nail on the head here about like Christopher Nolan trying to say, you know, he did create the bomb, but like he was, he, you know, he's not that guy. You know, he's not that guy. He 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 was at one point potentially in the Communist Party or like thinking about joining the Communist Party. He was very much a social liberal. He was very much. Uh, not like a pro government kind of guy. He was very much pro union and all these things. And so like, I think he was trying to emphasize, like, even though he created the bomb, even you can see even after he had created the bomb, he tried to lead a legacy of advising against using it because he knew, I think he was just trying to highlight that side of Oppenheimer of like post bomb. He was very much anti nuclear war and very much anti using nuclear weaponry because he knew its destructive capabilities so well. And that the government tried to silence him because it, he seen because they wanted to be able to use nuclear technology. So that if there is any reason why we might uh, 
uh, think Oppenheimer was this fascist who was pro-war and all that stuff. It's just because the, the government silenced him from having the opinions that he did have. I think that was like the the main takeaway from that last hour. But I felt like you 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 already did so much groundwork in the first two hours of showing him being, you know, part of the Communist Party or or not part of the Communist Party, but, but like attending communist meetings, uh, being very pro-union, being very socially liberal, like showing all of these things in the first two hours. I was like, I get it. I got it. You could have covered like the part of his life where he is being uh, uh, sort of I, I like I liked the scenes where he was being uh, interrogated. I wasn't the biggest fan of like the Louis Strauss hearing. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care as much because he's not Oppenheimer. Like I'm watching the movie because I want to know more about Oppenheimer and I want to know more about, you know, his legacy. Right. And I understand that Louis Strauss is like a part of that in terms of like tarnishing his legacy. But like. It felt like it was forced like they had to force an antagonist into the movie and that ended up being Louis Strauss. And I don't know why there had to be an antagonist. I don't know why the antagonist couldn't have just been Oppenheimer's guilt, mm-hmm. which would have been fine and would have also cut out half an hour of the movie. Right. I mean, I, I think, I think maybe if I read American Prometheus, maybe I'd get it more what he was trying to go for, but I don't think you needed Louis Strauss to be like the antagonist of the movie. True. I did like how in the beginning we're sort of shown like Oppenheimer and Strauss and how they're, he's trying to be like buddy, buddy and amiable with him, but it's revealed later that like, Oh, this guy actually has this petty vendetta against Oppenheimer. So it's like trying to tarnish his legacy and reputation and all that. I do like that approach to it, but yeah, spending this whole final hour, which and like is opposed to the bomb and focused on like that idea of like Strauss, what he did to Oppenheimer and then like his own Senate hearing and how like, oh, it actually did come out that like Strauss did this bad thing. And then so he doesn't get the reward basically of that uh, cabinet position. What that was all trying to say and like dedicating the whole final hour to it. Yeah, I'm with you of wondering if a lot of that could have been just taken care of with the rest of what the two hours could have been focused on and seeing who Oppenheimer was in the beginning, like clearly knowing that like this was how he was made out to be from that like interrogation, whatever that council was clearly wasn't true based on what we had already seen. So did we need to see extensively the entirety of like those proceedings and then what came afterwards as well of the Strauss Senate confirmation stuff and like him not being able to, win the day basically and him being tarnished instead of Oppenheimer ultimately like I'm just I'm still trying to rack my brain around what he was trying to say with that I feel like part of it is I've heard some people discussing the idea of not Strauss necessarily but bureaucracy or like the broader idea of the the government sort of in that like military industrial complex way um, where that sort of becomes the main antagonist that Oppenheimer is trying to fight against and any and ta- anyone that is opposing that becomes a target. And so he needs to be discredited and like getting essentially pushed out of the public sphere. So he's not able to have any influence on it. That was another issue that right after the screening we had talked about as well, which is clearly he's being framed as like this anti like nuclear weapon 
um, activist in the later years of his life, post-bomb. What I want to know is why the security clearance itself was so integral to him being able to like, carry out that mission of speaking against the bombs. Because it didn't seem like like he may have security clearance, but it's not like he has any sway over the actual policies being made. I guess like having access to more of the information that's going on in regards to the development of the bombs and things like that allows yeah, him maybe to be has more to effective like his... as an activist, but like obviously he couldn't give out any classified information. So like I just didn't understand the connection there of like, oh, if we use this council to discredit him, get rid of his clearance, that will impede his ability to advocate against the bomb. I feel like he could already use his clout as like the father of the atom bomb. Yeah, maybe it's Oppenheimer, this great scientist, to do that work regardless of the clearance. It has something to do with his his credibility of like he is now a spokesperson for the bomb, but if he's not actually has security clearance or is working on any projects, why would anyone listen to him? His information is outdated. But they didn't like highlight that in any way. That that also was another question because it could make sense if like publicly he's being uh, tarnished because of his ties to communism. Like obviously this is in the McCarthy era. Red scares going on, all that sort of thing. So if he's being painted as a communist who's sympathizing with Soviets, then like, oh, don't trust what he says about the bomb because then he's, you know, just trying to help out the Soviets and prevent America from being able to build up the stockpile to protect against any attack from Russia. That could make sense. But the question I would have then is, was any of the information that was being discussed in that interrogation, like within that council, did any of that become public? Like, obviously, at a certain point it did, but did it become public in that day and age? Like, did the public just know, oh, Oppenheimer lost his security clearance? Or did they know, oh, Oppenheimer has lost his clearance because he's a communist and he's working with the Soviets and he's sympathizing with them? That I could understand of like, oh, his public image is now being tarnished. And so he's not going to have as much sway as before. But that mm-hmm. question didn't really get answered either. So like the stakes at the end of the film there, like why is this element of Oppenheimer being tarnished so critical? I feel like that wasn't as clear as it could have been to make it as like intense and as engaging. Um, so yeah, that was for me the the issue with that final hour and why I feel like it plus all this stuff before it retroactively dealing with the proceedings and with straws didn't hit home as as effectively as it could have. And I guess for many other people, it did end up being really effective. So again, maybe it's a second viewing sort of thing where coming to it again with a more better understanding of like, here's the story Nolan's trying to tell. Maybe it'll connect way more. Perhaps. Any other thoughts on Oppenheimer before we move on? Um, I don't think so. I guess we do. Oh, there is some things I want to say, about like the parallels to today and how it was, uh, I mean, obviously, with the situation in Ukraine, the threat of nuclear war is mm-hmm. even more present um, than it has been in many of the past few years. But another thing that is less like a one-to-one thing, but the idea of new technology that humanity is creating that has the capacity to destroy us, AI. Oh, yeah. I don't understand how, like, in the past year, we've seen this big boom in it, like, it being able to impersonate voices a lot better, like, deepfake technology getting better, chat GPT and stuff like that, you know, like, just constantly learning and being able to create documents, write documents, things like that. 
and it's still going forward. Like every single major tech company is working on their own version of an AI similar to ChatGPT. And that I think is like the most like important comparison point to like the bomb and how it just created a whole new era. Like there was definitely a before and after once that bomb was successfully tested uh, in Los Alamos, because now humanity had the capacity to destroy ourselves. Never did we have that before, but now with the uh, nuclear bombs, we do. And then with AI, now we are getting to a point where we are giving something else besides ourselves the capacity to destroy us. We're giving other intelligent beings that are not human, that are not organic, that do not actually depend on the material world to survive. We're giving them the capacity as well to be able to one day destroy us. And it's still pushing forward. It's still happening. Like the development is getting even more rapid. And that's just mind boggling to me. It's insane. So yeah, I can't imagine what people like Oppenheimer, people that maybe are related to the development of AI itself, what they must be thinking about it, <laughs> their sorts of the guilt they might be feeling whenever it does get to a point where it can like cause genuine destruction. But yeah, that was one thing to me that I was like, wow, this is similar to our world and our predicament in more ways than one. Yeah, I agree. That How was you feel uh, about that uh, final image of the world getting destroyed. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a lot. Yeah. Very. I was like, what a what a way to end the movie. The Fun way to end the night. Up. Yeah. Not <laughs> People great. saw Barbie before it and then they end off on that image. <laughs> yeah. Very different approaches to the ending there. But yeah. Yeah. All right. How many How many I am becomes death out of five <laughs> are you gonna give the movie? I'm giving it three point five. You're only what becoming you? three and a half times. Indeed. I'm gonna give it four. I think I liked it a little more than you, but I still was not like blown away. So I think Matt Damon's great. I think RDJ was really good. Great seeing him act in a thing that isn't a Marvel Iron property. Man. Yeah. Josh Hartnett was great as a, like one he other was professor really good, yeah. that Kelly Murphy was dealing with. Emily Blunt, of course, had a great moment. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Any other actors you want to shout out from this like all-star cast? Uh, I wish we saw more Josh Peck. You know, yeah, he got he a big in the role, trailer. Though. He did. He, he did. He was it. in the trailer. I was really hoping he'd be in it more. When he first showed up on screen, I looked over because I knew you knew he was in it. I knew Lily knew he was in it, and I don't even think I, I I don't think Ezra knows who Josh Peck is. Like I'm sure he knows who Josh Peck is, but doesn't <laughs> care as much. But I looked over at Issa because I knew she wouldn't know that he was in it, and she looked over at me and went, "What?" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> It was great. It is. It's funny seeing like the faces that pop up, like especially you, because I'm sure like when they were announced, we were talking about the crazy cast that was mm -hmm. attached to it. But I had forgotten the people in it. Since I forgot then. the so guy seeing... from Sky High was in it. The main kid from Sky High. I forgot he was in it until I saw the movie. He was in it. I thought it was the uh, the guy from uh, Roderick. The guy from no, no, it's both. So that guy's in it. He's very briefly in it, but the guy, you know, the guy who's like the nerdy guy who puts the marbles in the in the jars mm -hmm. with Oppenheimer. That's the guy from Sky High. What guy from Sky High? The main guy, the kid. The protagonist guy? Yes, the main thought, character from Sky High. I thought that was Greg. No. What? You thought that was who? Oh, he's a different guy. Yeah, I don't. 
It's been a decade since I've seen that film. I don't know. Who I don't know if you've not is. seen Sky High in less than 10 years. I mean, what an incredible film. We're going to watch Sky High at the next uh, movie night. Okay, whatever you want. Have it all me. Anyway. Yeah, it was fun seeing all these crazy familiar faces pop up. No one from outside Sky High was familiar, but... <laughs> outside of Killian Murphy, who do you think might win an Oscar for this? Um, I feel like RDJ has the best... Uh, you know, story going along with it. I mean, he's the second lead and mm -hmm. it's a defining, he's like definitely a supporting actor role. Like he could definitely clean house with that. So, yeah, I suppose you're right. I just thought Matt Damon was so good in the movie. I agree. I just, it's not the type of role that's going to get right. him nominated, but he you're was fantastic. Right. Matt Damon was so good. I think he could get nominated, but I don't think he'll win. Yeah. Matt Damon was great. Anyway, how many, how many, you said three and a half. I said four. Anything else about Oppenheimer before we move on? No, good to go. I think, I think that's it. All right, so then we got hot pot, which was delicious, <laughs> and then with our bellies full, we journeyed back to the theater to watch Greta Gerwig's Barbie, directed by Gerwig, of course, and written by herself and Noah Baumbach, who wrote Marriage Story and Squid and the Whale and a bunch of other movies, and starring Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferrera, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, Simu Liu. Will Ferrell, Michael Sarah, and many, many, many others. The other half of Hollywood that wasn't in Oppenheimer exactly. was in Barbie. <laughs> Were there any repeats? Do we know that of anyone who no. was in both Oppenheimer and Barbie? I don't think anybody was in both because they had to have been shooting close to the same time. That would have been crazy, though. That Imagine would being be insane. Barbenheimer, both. It would have been be the crazy. biggest weekend of your life, <laughs> for real. But yeah, so first impressions. I loved it. I really Me enjoyed too. it. It was so funny. I laughed a lot. I had a good time. I thought the set pieces were really well done. I thought it was shot really well. I thought the acting was phenomenal. There were just so many positives to it that I just I just had such a good time. Exactly. Yeah. It was very fun, very comedic, very lighthearted in many places. But it also being Greta Gerwig had a very powerful message to it. Strong themes like it definitely spoke on like womanhood gender roles all these sort of things tying it to our society in a real way so that i think elevated it above being again just like this big advertisement for barbie and for mattel i think was able to dig into and leverage barbie and everyone's perceptions of that famous toy to speak to a lot of really important and relevant um themes and ideas so yeah that was a, a very pleasant experience let's just go through some of the major things that stuck out i mean first of all barbie land the way that that was constructed Gorgeous. looked amazing the production Incredible. design all the costuming amazing the sets were so good i mean this oscars this year is gonna be filled with some powerhouses i mean you got this you got oppenheimer you got killers of the flower moon i mean talk about some mega hits going into the oscars our oscars draft is gonna be crazy we're gonna be clawing each other to get the good movies <laughs> exactly um but yeah so this again just the aesthetic of that really well done for gerwig talking about it being authentic artificiality like her trying to capture that sense of the 50s stage musicals the way they would have the painted sets and all that which you know for barbara land it being like this fake sort of world for 
these dolls that again are not like actual human beings that i think worked extremely well and again it's just visually it's just pleasing i mean the colors are popping everything is like a different shade of pink in there it's really well constructed so that was fantastic the hijinks they get up to though when they go to the real world when they're in la that i thought was very fun i agree i thought everything like the the first bit of the barbie sequence it felt a little odd and I don't really know why. I mean, I understand that like it's weird watching actors pretend to be dolls. But like the pacing of it also felt a little bit off. But once they left Barbie land and they got to the real world, it like cemented itself as being like solid for the rest of the movie, which is which is good to see. I always love to see a movie that gets better as it goes along, as opposed to Oppenheimer, which which sort of fizzled out. Right. I thought or should I say fusioned out. <laughs> Incredible. I thought the um the Barbie Land sequence, for the most part, I think it is really good. There was just, when they got to the beach, I thought a lot of the jokes there weren't working. Like the first, yeah, sure. like when it's to the song and it's like her going through her day, I thought that worked really well. And then the little dance party they have as well, I thought was great. But a lot of the comedy there was not quite hitting. But when they go to LA and they're doing that, I thought many of the definitely, jokes were yeah. firing all cylinders. The, um... Dude, it's just so funny when Ryan Gosling is walking away when they're in their like Western outfits and she's mm-hmm. trying to think and he's bored. So she's like, go take a walk. And he starts walking away and he's looking back at her the whole time. He's strutting away. It's so it good. Kills. It's so funny. Everything that everything that Ryan Gosling does in the movie is incredible. I mean, his whole bit where he goes and he discovers patriarchy. That's <laughs> so fucking funny. That is hilarious. And the horses thing, too. The horses. I'm obsessed with the horses. Once I found out that patriarchy wasn't all about horses, I just <laughs> didn't like it as much. Yeah, so good. But we can't only just discuss Ryan Gosling and the movie about Barbie, because Margot Robbie, also incredible, Kills. having to do, I mean, again, the comedic performance of Ryan Gosling was fantastic. Margot Robbie had to do that, but then also have an intense emotional side as well which i think was perfectly captured in the park scene when she's sitting on the bench i love that scene. that was just beautiful it was so good where she's just looking at the real world and she's like getting emotional oh, i love that scene it's so mm-hmm. good and then she looks over at the old lady and tells her that she's beautiful and it's like the first time that she's ever seen someone who has aged and then the lady responds like i know it's so touching such a beautiful little moment and this is where i think like the comparisons between Nolan and Gerwig, I think are so interesting because this can definitely be considered like her dark night in the sense that it's leveraging a brand and established IP, making it a mega hit with her own personal spin on it. And then now she's going to have a blank check to do whatever she wants to do next, which apparently is going to be Narnia. So I guess that's her filling out the rest of the like trilogy of IP things that she'll do. But then hopefully she's going to take a similar trajectory to Nolan and just start cranking out awesome original blockbuster films that people are going to want to go see because it's a Gerwig film. Yeah. So hopefully that'll be the case, but it's an interesting comparison point because I mean, Oppenheimer, I think it's greatest weakness probably was the lack of emotionality. Like there was that scene when he finds out that Tatlock had died and then he's he runs off into the woods, and then Emily Blunt's character is out there trying to like console him, and then also get him back into uh, 
you know, focusing on the Manhattan Project. And that is clearly like a moment where you're trying, like you should be feeling some sort of emotion there, but I wasn't. Yeah. In Barbie, at this moment, there was so much emotion that I was feeling here. Like just from this simple approach of her sitting on a bench, observing the people around her. And then that being like her first, you know, time seeing the range of human experience from mm. the great stuff to like a couple fighting to just this lady having a peaceful moment in a park bench next to her. I think that was so well done. And that speaks to Gerwig's greatest strength. I mean, from Lady Bird, which I adore, Little Women. Mm. I think that was on both of our, in our top five for the year, 2019. Yeah, Little Women um, so good. So she, like, that is absolutely her greatest strength. And she kills it here. Like, again, being able to make something that is so comedic, but that can touch into that deeper, more emotional side. And it feels natural, organic. And we can just quickly switch back out of it into the more absurd comedic hijinks like that is such a great skill um so yeah that moment it shined for sure Mm -hmm. absolutely what did you think of the america ferrera her being the mother to um the like tween daughter as they say which i mean gerwig bombach both great writers but i will say Mm -hmm. No one has ever referred to themselves as a tween ever. Yeah, never. <laughs> so that didn't quite uh, work there. But that like mother-daughter story, what was your thoughts on that? I like the twist being that America Frere is the one that was playing with Barbie and is the one that created that existential crisis in Barbie. I think that that was really good. The cellulite yeah, jokes really- are very, very funny. <laughs> mm-hmm like like knock out of the parts i thought that was very very funny uh i was not like super compelled by her storyline and it did feel like it detracted a little bit from barbie's storyline even though they were supposed to intertwine and go side by side with each other but i like the the idea behind trying to create a connection between mothers and daughters and their shared love for like barbies and dolls and like that idea of like being the the ground that bridges between the two of mother and daughter like i like the idea of that but it just felt like her storyline wasn't as like solidly like thought out and it detracted a little bit from the barbie storyline but then the barbie storyline became very plot heavy in terms of like battling ken back in barbie land which would then take a time away from america Ferrera's storyline which made it worse so it just kind of felt like instead of making them line up and interweave between one another, it kind of felt like they were fighting for attention at certain points. But then at the end, it sort of wrapped up in a good way by that point. But I mean, there just wasn't a lot of build up to that ending. I suppose. I really enjoyed the concept of like having that mother daughter relationship that's very like fraught at the moment. And mm-hmm. like the daughter doesn't want anything to do with the mother at that point. Like that whole montage sequence as well when we're seeing even before we see like america Ferrer's face we're seeing the daughter just like rejecting any attempt at affection or like having a connection with her daughter i thought that stuff worked really well the one element that i do think with the storyline didn't quite work was when the daughter has her shift 
and she wants to I agree. like agree with America Ferrera and like start saving Barbie Land and all that. That to me felt like it sort of didn't have enough build up to it because she mm-hmm. was so against Barbie and like hating all that. And we see initially yeah. when she's coming into Barbie Land that she's like opening up to it a bit. But then once Barbie sort of like shuts down and is like, oh, I'm going to just sit here and wait until like one of the other Barbies that's smarter can wake up and um, retake Barbie Land. She's like, oh, you're just like who I thought you were. And like, come on, let's go, mom. So there's like nothing in between that, which would have caused her to have that change of like, actually, we do need to change this. And then she's the one that convinces the mom to like go back and save Barbie Land. So I just wish there was something else there that would have helped made that change in character be a little bit more believable. But overall, I love the idea of like these this mother and daughter that are having a lot of strife at the moment. But they do find a way to reconnect through like helping Barbie self-actualize and also helping Barbie land be saved. So Mm -hmm. I do think that was really solid Um, in terms of the Mattel storyline with Will Ferrell and all that. I thought the border meeting was good. I thought the whole chase through the like office space was fun. Mm -hmm. But that to me was one of the plot lines that towards the end, I was like, what was this really like, Why were they like, chasing her that much? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, the, yeah, because he chases them back to Barbie Land, which he wanted her back in Barbie Land. But I guess if the humans are there, that's like, okay, we got to take them out. But then they were saying the Kens, like when they had taken over the dolls, the Ken things were selling off the charts. So then they come back into Barbie Land. They're not really like, even chasing them all that much like they're completely absent from the whole ken and barbie like civil war thing there yeah so yeah that to me was one where it's like i like the idea of having it there initially of them being sort of that antagonist but i feel like they, they just weren't really them. antagonists though they were kind of on barbie's side the whole time a little that bit. too like it starts out of like oh he's trying to send her back but she didn't want to go back at that point um but then and, and then yeah, like it shifts away it from been them better it would have been funnier and it would have made more sense if they wanted the ken dolls to stay in charge because they're selling like hotcakes i mean i don't think mattel would go for that storyline that's what i'm saying that feels like the one part where it's like mattel was like hey don't make us come off too much yeah. as the bad guy they do have that joke towards the end of he's like oh ordinary barbie that's a terrible idea and the guy behind him is like oh that'll make a lot of money and he's like oh, great idea let's do that yeah, so but I then that goes back on exactly what that. he had said before, which was where I don't care if they're selling like hotcakes. That's not the point. It's supposed to be Barbie, not Ken. Exactly. So like, does he care about money? Does he not care about money? I wish that was a little more. I agree with that. They should have just made up. them like you're already going halfway. Like you're just already making make money, a ton of money we, from this. We anyway, know so they're a corporation. Like, we know they yeah. care about money. Just make them money hungry. Yeah, and then the, at the soul of the company is still, you know, the ghost of free up exactly so the that i wish yeah would have been a little bit more um just leaning into let's just make them like the let's actual make antagonist them make them money hungry yeah. make them because yeah if they would have and that could have been a nice moment too if like the kens and the barbies gather together and they're like actually like you stop trying to come in and change this like we figured it out here we're good if after they retake barbie land that's when he shows up and is like, no, we got to place it back the other way because that's the way that was better. Um, so, yeah, they could have like had a stand against him. And then maybe that's when 
the Ruth Handler uh, ghost comes in. So, yeah, I don't know. I, that that was one moment where it could have been a little bit better. Yeah, but for sure. the whole Kingdom storyline, great. That was incredible. That oh, was amazing. so good. He takes over Barbie Land, renames all the dream houses, the Mojo Dojo Casa houses. <laughs> that is just so good. His little watch bit as well. When he's like, they respected me over there. They asked me the time. And he, he has like five watches. Watches, So good. His like movements there. It's just amazing. The physical comedy. Um, but yeah, so then we have this. And again, Barbie like shuts down. America Vera and the daughter leave. And then Michael Sarah pops up in the car. And then they decide they'll run back. What was your thoughts on uh, Alan? I know you're a Michael Sarah fan right loved it i loved it (laughs) i love the idea that there is this guy who is just ken's friend but he does not like feel the same way about barbie land that ken does he does not get obsessed with the patriarchy the acknowledgement that there's like there are guys out there that are like you know we 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 get it we get it plus michael Sarah just fucking kills it he's so good right not the biggest fan I could have done without ah, Alan. Fuck you. I don't have Michael Sarah in the role. Fuck everything you stand for. <laughs> fuck your opinions. You're not on this show anymore. You're gone. I've booted you off. It's now the box office show starring Dylan and Dylan only. Wow. All of that for Michael Sarah. And now you're muted. Now you can't I'm say anything. <laughs> you can't do this. So. Yeah, for the most part, I mean that was it is what it was. Wasn't the best part of it for me, but I'm mm-hmm. glad you and other folks were able to get enjoyment out of it. Yeah. And then they come back and uh she gives the big feminist monologue to Barbie to wake her up. Um and so we chatted about that afterwards of and I think it's an interesting discussion of like when are things too on the nose and then when might that be like acceptable anyway. So Talk about your your thoughts on that, of her whole spiel. I don't remember if it was Lillian or Issa who said this, but one of them said, and they brought up a good point, that it felt like the kind of speech you would see in a movie like 10 or 15 years ago. And at this point in society and in our culture, the things that they were saying were kind of like things we all know already and like we're aware of and we're like working to get better at because we've become aware of it. So like the revelation of pointing them out didn't seem as powerful as it would have been like 15 years ago of like you're you're hitting the the nail on the head here, you know, 15 years ago. Nowadays it's more it feels more like it would have been a better speech if it was about how to make those changes, how to reach a common ground in men, women in the patriarchy, how to understand each other better in terms of our role in society like like the actions we can take and things like that in terms of or instead of just saying what it is like to be a woman which is just it it, it it's fine like i agree with everything that america Ferrer says i think she's correct in everything she says but like we know we know we're aware we've seen it already for 15 years now in many great wonderful feminist movies we we need to get to the next step instead of right. just saying it all again. Yeah. So for me, my 
take on it is just wondering, does it being obvious make it any less impactful? Part of what they're trying to do is just reaffirm the idea of like, this is what it means to be a human, what it means to be a woman in today's society. And is there value in just people being able to hear that being spoken out loud, even if it's been heard a couple of times before, but just having it be like a reaffirmation of like, yes, this is what's like, that is unacceptable and problematic and all these things. I feel like there's, there is value in it being put to words and it being like said again, because it's her saying it to Barbie, who this is a revelation for her. I don't necessarily sure. think it's meant to play as a revelation as well to the audience. Cause I mean, yeah, these are people that, Oh, it definitely have is. lived these things. You say it definitely is. It definitely is. Yes. You think Gerwig believes she's making people see this for the first time? Not for the first time. I think she is like saying anybody who does not know this, you are learning this. Anybody who does know this, this is a reaffirmation of what you know. Like, like you are heard. You have been heard. We know this. Well, that's what I'm saying there. So it's not a revelation. It's a reaffirmation as in. It may be something you've heard before, like, oh, we know that's what you're touching on. It's still but, like, it's still a message to the audience. It's not just a message to Barbie. I mean, I agree. I, I'm saying yes, it's but for Barbie, it is a revelation. It is her hearing sure. this for the first time. But for the audience, it would be that reaffirmation of like, yes, we we know we've heard this before, but it's still impactful to have a sort of like solidarity of like, oh, this thing that I'm experiencing, it's not just me. I'm not just crazy. Like she but gets don't you this. think she that like this. don't you think that a little bit the idea of it being a revelation for Barbie, who is the protagonist of the movie, who is the perspective we're following, doesn't it feel like it's trying to be a revelation to the audience when it doesn't need to be? No, I don't feel so because that would be like any time any like mentor character is trying to impart a lesson to in a princess character. Like in theory, that's like oh a revelation for the apprentice, and it could be one for the audience as well but it's not necessarily meant to be like oh audience i'm teaching you this as well because you also don't know just like this apprentice it's like oh for the purpose of the story this apprentice needs to learn this lesson whether or not that is a new revelation for the audience i don't think that's necessarily the point i think for this one here it definitely was meant to be like more of a, a reaffirmation for the audience but functionally in the story it has to be because barbie hasn't you know lived a full life as a woman it was just like there's one day when she went into la and now she's like experiencing all these things and feeling all these things having Perhaps. somebody else like comment on that for her and put it into words and empathize with her show that like oh you're not alone in this functionally for the story i think it has to work as like a revelation but it doesn't necessarily mean like guess what audience like if you never understood the contradictions and the expectations for women get ready to learn i feel like that was definitely not i feel like gerwig is much more uh, aware um of like where we are in society and so her commentary on this mm-hmm. isn't to bring to light new observations about the patriarchy and about feminism and all that but just to reaffirm them yet again um which again it's like would there have been but as you were pointing out before should it have been her trying to create an entirely like new observation or concoct new strategies for dismantling the patriarchy or things like that. I feel like at a certain point it's all been like said before we could have all heard it before, but 
at a certain point, doesn't the the message just need to get reiterated if it's already been discovered and it's just about spreading it or like expanding it or refining it, things like that. Isn't that just as valuable as like, oh, if this were in fact a new revelation on the experience of what it doesn't it doesn't feel like a refinement either like it doesn't it feels like it's even more broad than it's ever been in the last like few years like we're taking it back to where it was 15 years ago being very broadly like this is what it's like to be a woman you don't understand this as a man which is like something we're now aware of or at least most people are aware of like as a man i don't know what it's like to be a woman and you can tell me what it's like to be a woman i can understand that but i don't fully understand what it's like to be a woman but it's also another thing you have to consider is like sure in our circles this is like knowledge we've heard before like we're well aware but that doesn't mean for every person that this stuff is something that they like so in other circles where they don't know about it would that be would that be a uh uh what's it called a an awakening for them would that for that circle would that be an awakening that's what i'm saying it could be so like for the the like film critics and people like us as well that are going to be talking about this film and like writing pieces on it, doing podcast episodes mm-hmm. on it. Like, yeah, for us, we probably are going to be like, yeah, we've heard this before because we run in those circles where like we talk about these things or where these things like it interests us to do that. But there could be, I mean, families that are going to this, boyfriends that get brought to this by their girlfriends, things like that, that mm-hmm. don't really put much stock into politics or dealing with gender politics or anything like that, social issues. And so they might, this might be the first time that they're like hearing this spoken in this way and get to have that understanding of, oh, this might be what this is like for them. Or, oh, finally someone else is seeing what like I've been feeling and they're able to speak to my experience. I don't think, I don't think this would be the first time that the majority of people would be hearing this type of argument. And even if it is, the people who have ignored or been avoiding that kind of argument for this long in history are not the kind of people who would be convinced by this argument now. Like, I don't think there's an individual walking in who just by dumb luck missed out on the whole feminist argument of this is what it's like to be a woman. And then they walk in the theater and they go, Oh my God, I had no idea. I think the only people that would affect are like, tweens who like the like the <laughs> character who are like 13 years old who have who are young enough to not be around for those kinds of movies that came out 10 years ago or so that made this kind of argument like ladybird and right. and would not like have that thought process until they see barbie now in 2023 so like people who were born in 2010 and afterward sure but that's not even the majority of people who are seeing the movie it's a very small amount of people seeing the movie sure comparatively yeah, I mean, maybe. But again, there could be value in for those tweens. Yeah, <laughs> I never sure. want to like say the word tween again after this. If you're but. desiring to shape the minds of the youth by reiterating an argument that's already been made in a movie that you know young people will go see, yeah, if if that's the argument you're making, I agree, that's fine. You can, yeah. you can make that argument. I would not have made it so on the nose. I would have made it more... That I feel like, yeah, you can take issue with. I feel like at a certain point, though, it's like every idea, every theme has always, it's been done before. It's just the new execution of it you get. I agree. And I I feel like what she's going for here of, oh, it's a cathartic experience to have her pent up with all these like emotions and feelings about 
woman womanhood and all that frustration and she's able to let that out in a way where it is a revelation for barbie mm-hmm. who is trying to like deal with all this and reconcile with it for the first time ever i feel like that it does work enough but yeah i don't disagree that like i mean yes it's very obvious things that are being said it's very much on the nose yeah Um, it's just crazy the movie has such beautiful moments like where she's sitting on the park bench or where she's with ruth handler at the end of the movie and she's like just feeling feeling Mm -hmm. where she's debating whether she wants to be a human and she like feels the feelings of a human and like is enthralled by that like such beautiful moments like that just juxtaposed with this speech that america fair gives which is like again not an incorrect speech just so very much on the nose and not subtle it it feels like it it feels like it's not as serious as it could be and it feels like it's not as poetic as it should be perhaps the argument i i will i would make is not that i don't want to hear the same argument again 15 years into you know 15 20 years into this sort of uh dismantle the patriarchy argument but I don't want to hear it made the exact same way again when, I mean, if it didn't, if it worked as much as it could before, why are we saying the exact same things again when we could try and say something new? Right. That is another point that I, I can agree with of like okay. dressing up the language you use to convey this idea can mm-hmm. like give it a new spin. Yeah. Because again, going back to something we talked about way long ago, Andor, when it had its monologue in one of those speeches, um, when Stellan Skarsgård is giving his speech, again, it's an idea we've heard before of like someone is making these sacrifices, making themselves out to be like a monster, a bad person, doing the hard things for the greater good so that other people will be able to have a better life afterwards. But the language used there, my guy says, I burn my life so that there can be a sunrise I will never see or something to that effect. And oh like, god that's so, so good, good. Uh, like that's amazing so again it's like the idea we've heard a thousand times before of like oh, i'm just sacrificing myself so people can have a better life but the way it's phrased it just hits so hard so i can see that point too of like oh this wasn't like framed in a very poetic language but then i could see the other side of it of like well maybe she is trying to make it as broad and accessible as possible so that people mm-hmm. who maybe tweens are going to be able to you know connect with it so I don't know. It's an interesting point. I, I don't take issue with like anyone who didn't really resonate with it because um, I can see the points. But I ultimately thought it was it was effective. But yeah. Mm-hmm. What about Ken wrapping up his storyline? I feel like he had the the best storyline to be wrapped up. Like he had the he experienced such great change, and it was so like touchingly wrapped up with his conversation with Barbie. Of it's not Barbie and Ken, it's Barbie and it's Ken, and he's mm-hmm. Ken off. <laughs> I <laughs> so thought it was good. great. Like I, I thought, like that realization of like, and and then her apologizing for like her treatment of him. That like the idea of like she did something wrong and he did something wrong, and they've like realized that together and can now be friends. Like I like mm-hmm. that. I like I was very unsure of where they were gonna go with that because it was the idea of. Ken is obsessed with her and she's not really interested back, but she's not saying anything about it. And now he's gone full, you know, patriarchy mode where, how are they going to tie this in a way where I like both characters and I respect both characters and I'm okay with that. And they did Mm -hmm. it. And I really like that. Yeah. I agreed. His whole arc, I thought was really well done. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the way they dealt with the, like the male characters, what they talked about with men as well. I thought that was 
beautifully done because i mean they were put in a role where they did nothing in society i mean they were essentially the trophy wives right like that sort of equivalent um and then when they bring in patriarchy and then they force the barbies to be that um it's ultimately them acting out of that resentment that they had we see that with ken when uh he took the house from her and then he said oh it's boys night <laughs> reminiscent of what she said in the beginning of like oh it's girls night it's girls night every mm-hmm. night every night um mm-hmm. so he's like yeah how does that feel so that sort of thing of like he was feeling left out he was feeling like marginalized in barbie land mm-hmm. um but then they were able to get to a point where it's like oh the kens were able to be a better part of that instead of them just being like cast aside again doing nothing uh isa ray who i love by the way great as yeah, president I know barbie I know um she was able to be like yeah we'll give you like a lower court like district court position but to where they're actually going to be able to be a part of something now so i think they did a great job handling that because again a different movie could have just entirely like crapped on them the whole time and like just didn't really resolve them in any way but mm. ken's character was treated well and he was given space to be like oh you are not defined by like, again all these patriarchal elements which he even said too is like oh i wasn't really that interested when i found it wasn't about horses so like you fun. can love masculine things like the horses or like the cars all that stuff pumping iron all that but you don't have to be defined by it and you're not defined by just like putting down women as a way to do that and you also aren't defined by just like chasing after a woman like Barbie not liking you back doesn't mean you're any less of a person. You are Knuff. You are Knuff. And they, they gave that message beautifully. So, yeah, I, I love want, that. Dude, I want idea. that hoodie so bad. That hoodie would be so funny to have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we also have to talk about I'm Just Ken. What I'm a great song. Oh, it's so good. The whole musical number is just absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. Dude, I was brilliant. I had a smile on my face that whole time. It was so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So amazing. The whole like soundtrack too, but that one in particular, I'm like, this is this is just amazing. Do you Mark think it's Ronson, gonna get, uh, Andrew Wyatt? I think Go it's ahead. pretty clear that the Billie Eilish song is gonna get nominated for best song, but do you think I'm just Ken will be as well? I mean I feel like, yeah, the answer is pretty clear that it should be Billie Eilish since they did the thing that I love when and what all like original song nominees really should be doing in order to win is like it was integral to the story and the melody of that song was like woven in throughout the rest of the the film. So that one, I think definitely is going to be the one that gets nominated. But is there an you imagine cat Ken, behind you? There is. She's upset. She's yelling at me. She hungry. I guess. I'm trying oh, to finish my is recording. It, is it, it's not it's Claymore. Cocoa. Is it Coco? No, oh, Coco. Just pick her up and put her on your lap. Well, then she's going to bump into the mic. <laughs> That'd be so gonna, funny. Please do it. She's going to meow into Please it. Please pick up Coco. I would love it if Coco joined the podcast. <laughs> I mean, she's been giving her opinions. She saw Oppenheimer the other day. so Yeah, did she really? She can comment on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would love to see ryan gosling performing at the oscars it would be so funny yeah it's great i mean it's in like an 80s power ballad it's so beautiful come on it's so good yeah but it's great yeah either way it'll be 
great to see which song ends up in the uh in the oscars pool but yeah any other things you want to talk about with barbie i just like the ending with ruth handler where they walk off and she gets to feel the emotions of a person and like before she decides and then she decides yes because she feels the emotions i think mm-hmm. that's great it's gorgeous what a what a beautiful way to to end that movie i absolutely very beautiful and that little montage of like all the home videos and stuff oh yeah incredible and that was with the soundtrack so beautiful. Mm-hmm. yeah that was when they played the Billie Eilish song, right? It was. Oh, fantastic. Truly beautiful. Yeah. But yeah. And then the way they ended off with her going to a gynecology appointment. <laughs> That's very funny. A, a, I'm glad they ended on a joke. Yeah, that was fun. And just the way they set it up, too. Like, obviously, you assume she's going to go into, like, a, a business meeting or job interview. But instead, it's that. And she's and so, she's so excited. It. Yeah. Very, very funny. So that's great. Because apparently, I mean, as we don't experience this, but the reason that's so funny too is such a dreaded experience. Like even mm-hmm. my mom after was like, what a great way to finish it. Because that's the worst part of being a woman is going to the gynecology <laughs> appointment. So I'm like, dang, that's funny how she's going in all cheery about it. Yeah. So yeah, amazing way to end it. Yeah. So how many Mojo Dojo Casa houses out of five would you get the movie? <laughs> You can't do that. They reclaim yes, Barbie Land. We have to say how many dream houses out of five. Dream houses is not as funny. We didn't <laughs> use your last one either. You wrote atomic bombs out of five when I become death was right in front of you. Well, I mean, I wrote the I'm become death thing in there. That's more of a pun. I mean, that can't really be how many become deaths. <laughs> Doesn't really work. It needs to be a countable noun. Um, 4.5 dream houses out of five. How about you? I'm also going to give it a four in line with Oppenheimer. I still and think there go. were a couple of moments where like the whole Mattel storyline and then there were a couple of moments in the beginning that I felt were a little awkward and then the America Frere and her daughter were a little awkward at points. So like there were definitely like story beats that could have been fleshed out a little better and could have like without sacrificing anything in the rest of the story. Like I, I could see a way where you could just flesh those out real quick and it just didn't happen. And so I think writing quality wise, I think it's on the same level as Oppenheimer. And I think they're both just technical marvels. I will mm-hmm. say, though, I was more emotionally affected by Barbie, but right. I was in awe of Oppenheimer completely. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I give them both four out of five. So it was just, yeah. it was a very much four out of five day. I would give the hot pot four out of five as well. Dang. So yeah, your Barbenheimer score, four out of five. My Barbenheimer score, four out of five as well. There we go. Balanced. Yep. As all things should be. <laughs> That is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or just send a message to Coco, Ryan's cat, you can email us at theblacksofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars whenever podcast I'd be listening to and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.